It's now time to go around the nation in Division Three football. And here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. Thanks, Dave, and welcome back to the podcast, everyone. We appreciate you downloading us and giving us a listen as we talk about week 14 of the 2015 Division Three football season. This is the Around the Nation podcast for December 7th of 2015. And once again, you know, the national semifinals, yep, they're all purple all the time. Nobody will be new to the Stag Bowl this year, and in fact, Linfield has the longest Stag Bowl drought of the four teams with its uh, first and only trip, its last and only trip, in fact, in 2004. Uh, the final four? Yeah, they were ranked number one, number two, number four, and number five in our final regular season poll. Uh, they were one, two, three, and eight in the AFCA Top 25. And, and, you know, even in August, you could have foreseen three-fourths of this final four since Whitewater, Mount Union, and Linfield were the top three in our preseason poll. What does all that add up to? Yep, another all-purple bowl, just like the previous 11 Stag Bowls. Uh, you know, of course, as we know, though, and have known since the bracket came out, at least we'll have a different matchup in the championship game. Since Mount Union and Wisconsin Whitewater are meeting in the semifinals on Saturday in Alliance, so you know Keith, now that this game is actually happening, how do you feel about it? I spoke on the podcast when the brackets came out about how unnecessary and avoidable I thought rematching uh, Mount Union and, and Wisconsin Whitewater was. I thought by flipping St. John's and and Whitewater, you would have avoided the Mayak and Wyak rematches that eventually happened, St. Thomas and St. John's, and then the one uh, that just happened this past weekend with Whitewater and Oshkosh. But we also would have had a way too early Tommy Warhawks game, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, looking at these being two final four teams they would have played in the second round. So uh, maybe that wasn't the perfect solution. I don't love or like that that um, Mount Union and Whitewater uh, have to play before the semifinals. The only reason there won't be another stag bowl between the two is because they meet here in the semifinals. But here it is, and, and we all saw it coming miles away. For as many times as we've seen this matchup, though, we haven't seen it as a playoff game in Alliance, Ohio. Whitewater predominance actually opened up at Mount Union back in 2003, but since they started doing the Stag Bowl every year thing back in 2005, the teams have always met in the national championship game at Salem Stadium. So to answer your question, I don't love it, but I realize Whitewater lost the game and all bets were off as to where they'd be placed in the bracket. So I guess we'll have to see how it shakes out before we can truly judge if the two purple powers met a week too early. There are a couple other purple juggernauts on the other side of the bracket clamoring to get back to Salem. And I think each has a legitimate shot at winning it all. Yeah, and you know, my take is basically sometimes that uh, Whitewater semifinal has been more competitive than the Stag Bowl, so maybe we could get that competitive game in the Stag Bowl again. And, you know, this would set us up with some interesting storylines, like could we finally get the Linfield Mount Union game that we've been looking for for more than a decade, or going back even further, the Northwest Conference Mount Union game that uh, we, uh, we thought we might get back in 1999 before we knew that was even a big thing. Um, you know, could St. Thomas get its chance to avenge the uh, the loss from Stag Bowl 40? Could we get uh, one of those great Whitewater Linfield games in Salem instead of McMinnville or Whitewater? Think about that on national television. Or uh, could we get the St. Thomas Whitewater matchup, which has played out in uh, many sports in Division Three in the past five years? That could take the biggest stage instead and feature two very similar teams. A lot of interesting possibilities there. Yes, style-wise, I think Linfield Mount Union would be more unique, and they're both fancier teams, let's say, than the brutish Whitewater and St. Thomas matchup would be. Uh, But I applaud whoever gets to Salem because it's always new for someone on the roster, and there are always fresh storylines somewhere, 
even if they're the same ones, in, in this case, first-year coach Kevin Bullis for Whitewater, first-year quarterback Therese Scott for Mount Union, the same storylines that we featured on the cover of Kickoff back in August. Did you order Kickoff? You could still order Kickoff and read everything that we thought about the uh, season before it started. A lot of things, um, of course, you've probably read uh, now because a lot of those things have actually happened. Uh, you know, but regardless of what we look forward to as matchups for Stag Bowl 43, we have a little matter of Saturday's four quarterfinal games and this week's two semifinals. So let's get down to it with game balls. And for game balls, I'm going to go with uh, Jordan Ratliff. Uh, I noticed that here in my rundown, I didn't even mention he's the Whitewater running back. But if, if you've listened to podcasts before, you don't need me to identify him. Uh, but the improvement on his part and, and on the part of the rest of the Whitewater offense between the two games with Oshkosh was pretty dramatic. Ratliff, 19 carries for 81 yards the first time out, didn't have a single carry of more than 11 yards, then had uh, 164 yards and 31 carries on Saturday. Whitewater didn't have a single play of 20 or more yards in, on offense in the loss to Oshkosh back in October, but they had six of those in the win on Saturday. Well, my game ball goes to Linfield quarterback Tom Connect. When you get 492 yards passing and a game-winning drive from your backup quarterback, that's your game ball guy right there. I, I thought the team rallied around him when he didn't have success right away. Uh, they fell behind to Mary Harden-Baylor. He threw a, uh, an early interception. Uh, and then they followed him and made plays for him down the stretch, same as they would have for Sam Riddle. Uh, I tweeted this back on Saturday, but it's that thing that teams always say, our backup could start for anyone else. It's often empty and not always true, but in this case, I buy it. And for, for Linfield, a program that's had some high-profile letdowns by, uh, by loaded teams, teams that we thought would get to Salem, uh, they were primed for another one with their starting quarterback out and Mary Harden-Baylor uh, taking that 21-point lead early. But they didn't give in, and, and Tom Connect wouldn't let them. So by the end of that game, you could feel pretty much that Linfield was going to win, especially if the ball was in Connect's hands late in the game. You know, they would get whatever they needed for a first down, and, uh, and, and he methodically milked the clock on that final drive to set up the game-winning field goal with three seconds left. It's the Around the Nation podcast, and it's time to welcome in Ryan Carlson, former Linfield defensive lineman, perennial sideline presence, and the guy who puts all of those great video productions together for the Wildcats that you've probably seen. Uh, he's going to talk with us about the Linfield Mary Harden Baylor quarterfinal game on Saturday. And Ryan, welcome back to the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Pat. Yeah, yeah. You guys go find me on Cat uh, Dome Alumni on on YouTube and subscribe to me, would you? There you go. Yep, Cat Dome Alumni, uh, all one word. Go go uh, go seek that out. A lot of good stuff there. Uh, yeah, I well, I make sure we want to make sure we promote what you're here to promote, right? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> uh, first of all, though, I have to ask the burning question. We might as well tackle it right out of the gate. What's the yeah. status of Sam Riddle for next weekend's game? And, and for folks who are joining us for the first time or, or missed a couple of weeks, Sam's the Wildcats starting quarterback, uh, All-American candidate, and he left the second round game versus Cortland with an injury. Well, Sam was suited up yesterday, and uh, you know, I that's that's a question for. Uh, for really coach Smith and you know, who knows? I mean, I, I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know the answer to that. And I know that's the political way to put it, but I don't know what Sam's status is. And he has another four or five days of, of rehab and, and rehabilitation on, on, on the leg. So, you know, I don't know what his status is at this point at this point for St. Thomas, but um, I'm sure that the coaching staff will be, you know, feels comfortable in the current situation, but if Sam is healthy and ready to go, that's, uh, that'll be a huge, you know, boon for the Wildcats. You know, let's talk about the current situation. So uh, um, I know a, a Tom Connect interception contributed to uh, the crew jumping out to a quick lead. They went up 21 nothing. But what else was uh, Mary Harden-Baylor doing at that point that was working for them? 
you know, they, they came in with some different things that, you know, I don't think Linfield defenses has seen yet, but it was really the speed factor uh, at first. I mean, they're, they are an extremely fast team. And, and I think the, the Linfield defense was just, they just weren't adjusted to it. You know, we don't see that kind of speed up in the Northwest conference and didn't see that in the first couple rounds of the playoff. And, um, it was uh, evident that Mary Harden Baylor was easily, clearly the most athletic team Linfield has seen on the year. And uh, they came out of the gates and, and both barrels punched us right in, right in the mouth. And um, it was a you know, pretty, pretty scary situation when you get down 21 nothing uh, that early in the ball game. Uh, but there was no panic on the sideline. There was no it's over. Uh, feeling on the sideline it was just like hey uh, Linfield had had been on the other side of this a couple years ago we went out to Whitewater and jumped up early on the Warhawks 14 nothing and almost had a chance to go three touchdowns super early in that game and Whitewater methodically you know stormed back in that game and and eventually you know won that ball game that sent him off to to another national championship and so Linfield through that experience knew it was like hey you know, we've been in a situation on the other side of the fence. We just have to keep clawing, keep fighting. And eventually the momentum turned for Linfield and they went on to outscore Mary Harden Baylor by a score 38 to 14 for the remainder of the contest and just found a way to get it done. You know, one of the things that I was thinking about all week, uh, you know, kind of mentally um, placing connect into the lineup, I guess, based on what I'd seen uh, in when I was out there in October, knowing that a lot of the times he's going against either a team whose number ones are certainly outmatched or sometimes uh, a team's number twos. I did think that speed of the game from any of those regular season games compared to what uh, Mary Harden Baylor was going to bring was going to be a significant difference. Um, you know, wh- how did the how did the adjustment go there? How quickly did that uh, or how slowly did that take? Well, I think the Maryland Baylor is, I mean, obviously tremendous, especially their defensive line, and they pretty much shut down Linfield's run game, which has been pretty solid all year. And so it just came down to the passing game. It came down to if we could protect, if Tom could deliver, and if our receivers could make plays on the ball. And um, first off, I thought our offensive line did a tremendous job in in keeping – uh, Tommy upright for the great majority of the game against a team that had 55 sacks coming into the game. And uh, they did such an admirable job of, of keeping a clean pocket for Tom. And uh, he's such a tall guy. He can really have a good job of seeing uh, the the defense. And we just picked him apart. You know, I, I thought our receivers made all the difference in the world. They were a pretty maligned group at the beginning of the season. They had talent. They just hadn't really put it together. Not a single one of our wide receivers was all Northwest Conference, not second team, not honorable mention, not a single one of them. And as a group, they shredded Mary Harden-Baylor yesterday with uh, acrobatic catches, fighting for the ball, just steady in traffic. Uh, and I think Tom just felt comfortable back there. He just felt comfortable and delivered strike after strike. He was on point for the great majority of the game. He threw you know a couple picks, but besides those picks – he was putting the ball on the money, and he did not look uncomfortable in the pocket at all against what is really a fast and athletic defense. Uh, mentioned Mary Harden Baylor jumped out to a twenty-one nothing lead, but Linfield got back in it right away. Right, it was a, a one-score game at the end of the first quarter. Uh, at what point did things start to click? When did you see the uh, the game start to turn around? Yeah, you know, I think there was a huge turning point in in the whole game, and it happened in that first quarter where Mary Harden Baylor, like you mentioned, uh, jumped out to that twenty-one nothing lead and. After they scored that third touchdown, uh, you know, Linfield, they pinned Linfield deep again, and the Cats were scuffing a little bit. And I can't remember if it was a second or third down 
uh, where there was an incompletion near the Linfield sideline in the Mary Harden Baylor safety. I can't remember his name. Uh, I don't know. Uh, but he got up and he, he started shushing the sideline. He's, you know, put his finger up to his mouth, like, you know, quiet down, shut up. And that drew us unsportsmanlike penalty flag that kept the Linfield drive, drive alive. And, uh, that was the drive that Linfield went down and punched in that first touchdown. And it was a completely different game after that, that as soon as Linfield punched in that touchdown, you could just feel the confidence and the momentum swing over to the Linfield sideline. And it was due to someone not being able to handle success and they drew non-sportsmanlike conduct penalty when they didn't need to. All he had to do was turn around, go back to his huddle. Um, but, you know, he made the decision to taunt, and it cost Mary Harden-Baylor in a major, major way. Um, and there were a couple of other uh, key plays down near the end of the game as well. So I watched the last uh, six minutes or so uh, mm-hmm. on the on the video archive and saw the uh, the play that everybody was talking about, the bad snap that went over the uh, over the Mary Harden-Baylor quarterback's head, and then Alex Hoff just out-sprint everybody to uh, run down that ball. It, you know, people say Linfield was lucky, and yeah, but that's that's true that we were fortunate to get a good break, but Linfield wouldn't have been quote-unquote lucky if they didn't fight that whole game and get back into it and get in a position to win that ball game. And and Alex, just it was that was just desire. That's just a hustle, desire play of wanting the football and wanting it more than the, than the other guy. And um, Alex has been that guy on defense for Linfield for the past two years, and um, I, you know, I think you'll probably have a better idea. I'm biased, obviously. I think Alex is the best defender in the country. And uh, he showed that again where he made two huge fumble recoveries where he just straight wanted the ball more than the other guy. And uh, those were two huge recoveries by Hoff and none bigger than that that last one. I fastidiously avoided using the term lucky just uh, just as a just as a I, reference I, point. You know, sometimes it's, it's better to be lucky than good. And we'll take the we'll take the luck there. And but Linfield. You know, at the same time, Linfield made the most of the opportunity. You know, they they got the recovery, they put it down, and they, you know, and our and our field goal kicker split the upright. True, wasn't even close. So, you know, yeah, we you can say luck, whatever you want to say, but at the end of the day, Linfield Linfield got it done. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with being both lucky and good, and certainly uh, Linfield accomplished that on Saturday with a 38 to 35 win versus Mary Harden Baylor. Quickly, uh, you know, obviously Linfield makes the trip out to St. Thomas. Uh, it's been a few years since the, they've been out here, and a few years since these teams have matched up. But uh, what do you think about mood of the team? Uh, you know, travel plans. You know, what's the general thought uh, around around the Linfield program for what they're facing in St. Thomas this week? Obviously, St. Thomas is tremendous. You know, you you take a look at them on on film and what little I've seen of them. I mean, they're gigantic on the offensive line, bruising uh, running backs. They you know they they just get it done, and their defense looks freaking amazing. Excuse the language, um, but I just think that's a it's a huge challenge. But as a program, Linfield knows that if we're gonna go back to the Stag Bowl, we have to get through the Midwest. Um, you know, it's been Whitewater previously, and now it's St. Thomas. And we know that's where our road to Virginia has to go through. We have to get through on the road in the Midwest somewhere, and that's the only way we're we're getting there. And so I think this program is mentally prepared for the challenge. It's accepting of the challenge, and it's ready to take on what is, you know, an incredible opponent. So I think the program's ready, program's excited, and uh, we'll go out there and give it our best shot. 
Well, Ryan, I appreciate you uh, spending the time with us once again. And uh, if you make the trip out to St. Paul, uh, you know, give me a give me a holler. I will uh, be sure to show you plenty of good places to uh, catch a uh, quality uh, brew and some food. I, I think I can say that. Right? If you can say freaking, then I can refer to alcohol, right? Yes, you can, and and I will take you up on that offer. And of course, I'll be there. I'll be uh, I'll be looking for some of those St. John posters. To uh, I know that we're playing St. Thomas, but I hope I run into some of the St. John guys because. Uh, they're a lot more fun than the Tommies, I'll just say that. <laughs> That's Ryan Carlson. Uh, thanks for joining us. You got it. Wow. Unnecessary shots at the Johnnies there at well, the end by by Ryan. At the Tommies, actually. I'm sorry, at the Tommies. Uh, anyway, um, I thought the biggest revelation from from Saturday, uh, you know, and this fits with the, the game ball observation, was that is that Connect can play. So even if we have a Matt Blanchard, Lee Brecky situation here where Sam Riddle is going to suit up and the coaching staff is going to keep the intrigue and the charade going, but uh, but the starters really never going to be able to play and never return uh, during the entire postseason. Linfield is certainly in good hands with its backup quarterback. Yeah, and we don't have any information on it, uh, but you know if 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 the if it's Riddle is never going to suit up, you you'd have to think that's at least possible. I mean. Think of it, what if it's a high ankle sprain, right? Then, you know, he wouldn't be in position to really play until early January, which would be fine if this were FCS or, you know, the whatever they're calling the FBS championship game, but not in Division Three, where, you know, we play our playoffs every week and sometimes we have just six games or six days between games instead of seven or 11 or, you know, 40. Yeah, I was going to mention that if you didn't, Pat, that the, the rhythm of the D3 season is every Saturday, except for the Stag Bowl, because now it's uh, for the past several years, it's been in that Friday night slot on uh, on ESPN. So it actually compresses that final week by a day. And of course, for a lot of teams, that's finals week uh, for, for the winter semester or the fall semester, I guess. Um, so, uh, so yeah, that, that, that last week, um, you know, you don't, you know, there's not a lot of recuperation time. Uh, if it's someone like Linfield, of course, they'd also be traveling cross country. So, uh, so I think maybe the case may be whoever plays this week is, is who plays in the stag bowl for them, but we are getting, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Um, you know, Ryan was, uh, was at the game and joined us here on the podcast. So I'll defer to him and, and his expertise, but it, it definitely seemed to me that connect got more comfortable and confident um, as the game went on to the point where if they needed third and 13, he was getting them 14 yards without a doubt. Uh, and that, that actually happened in the second in the second half of the game. Uh, Mary Harden Baylor, I think, was, uh, you know, got off to that great start. But by the second half, they were on their heels um, and uh, and really just got the huge Denarian Thomas 85-yard touchdown with six minutes left in the game. That gave them the first signs of life in the second half, practically, because, you know, they'd scored the, the other 28 points in the first 20 minutes of the game. Uh, but I think by then you could feel the momentum shift and that if, if Connect had the ball last, Linfield was going to win. Yeah, I, I mean, Connect can definitely play. Uh, I saw him, you know, back in October. He looked good in person again, you know, against uh, against less than uh, playoff ready competition. Uh, so he can definitely play. But I thought Ryan did a nice job shouting out the offensive line for keeping him upright as well. That's what I was, I think, most concerned about uh, for him coming into the week. You know, also overlooked in in the comeback because Connect was so spectacular and because he led them uh, on that, that you know, game-winning drive and perfectly milked the clock. Uh, the, the defense, the Linfield defense in the second half, didn't really give up anything except for that, that huge play. Mary Harden-Baylor, as I mentioned, had the 28 points in the first 19 minutes and then just scored the seven points after that, and, uh, and those really came on, a, on one long play in, in the second half. And every time uh, Linfield's defense needed a play, they came up with one. The biggest one certainly was the, uh, was the Alex Hoff 
uh, fumble recovery that set the final drive in motion. And that's probably the guy that most people out there know from the Linfield defense. But I, I thought the entire defense played well for, for the last 40 minutes of that game. Let's talk now about the St. Thomas Wabash game, and to do so, we're bringing in former D3Football.com All-American receiver and return man Fritz Waldvogel, who remains close to the game as the sideline reporter for the Tommy's radio broadcast on WCCO Radio in Minneapolis. Fritz, thanks for taking the time today. Uh, you bet. Thanks for having me, Pat. Yeah, you bet. Uh, boy, the Tommies look dominant right now, Fritz. Uh, uh, you and I chatted on the sidelines right at the beginning of the third quarter, coming off a, a second quarter in which St. Thomas was having a little trouble getting things done uh, on, on offense, but that didn't seem to matter much for them in the second half of that game on Saturday. No, I think they uh, were able to convert some some big, bigger plays and were more consistent on first and second down. But I think if you really watched the game yesterday, I was really impressed with the Wabash um, defensive front. Um, they did such a nice job with the St. Thomas run game and really kept them, you know, off balance where they had really succeeded throughout the you know, whole, throughout the whole year, you know, running the ball really well. And I think they really forced John Gould, the quarterback for St. Thomas really to make a lot of throws. And I, I think that was the difference in the second half. But the question in my mind about Gould uh, kind of over the course of the year, uh, it's kind of gone away a little bit recently, but I always thought that if, if they needed him to throw the ball 40 times in a game or to win a game or for the St. Thomas to win a game solely on the strength of his passing, that that probably wasn't going to happen. Yeah. And if you look at throughout the whole year, I mean, that's definitely, I think when you look at that St. Thomas offense, their strength is definitely running the football, but sometimes I feel like, uh, you know, some quarterbacks can get, you know, pigeonholed as, you know, just game managers, even though, you know, the offensive philosophy of St. Thomas is, you know, run first where, you know, maybe he's not given an opportunity to throw up the ball 30, 40 times throughout the season. Um, but I think, you know, when you get to this point in the playoffs, you can't, you know, just be a really good running team. Your quarterback's going to have to make some plays because you're going to be playing some really good front sevens. Yeah, run game, obviously a key for St. Thomas this season. But for those who haven't seen the Tommies play, you know, what are the keys to this team? What makes them so successful here in 2015? Well, I think, uh, you know, the addition of Jordan Roberts on the offensive side of the ball, you know, really makes them a lot more dynamic. The, the front five uh, offensive line for St. Thomas, the offensive side of the ball, has done a really good job meshing. You know, I, I think I've talked to Coach Crusoe. You know, this isn't the most athletic group they've ever had, but play the best as a unit. And then on the defensive side of the ball, you know, really fast. This is probably one of the most athletic defenses they had, um, you know, since I've been following the program, you know, since Glenn – uh, became coach in 2008. Um, you know, they're, they're a little smaller than they have been in the past. And, you know, that was one concern of mine when they made some changes early on where, you know, they, they took away some size to be, you know, a little faster. And, uh, you know, I think the speed has really paid off. And, and this is maybe one of the best defense that they, they have had, you know, even if you go back to that 2012 team when they went to the Stag Bowl. Yeah, and, and we talked uh, on the podcast about uh, earlier in the season about some of the schematic changes and position changes that to kind of uh, fuel that defensive makeover. So, thirteen games into the season, how's that group progressed? What's the uh, you know what's the change and the improvement been? You know, I think they continue to get better. You know, uh, you know, a lot of these guys are playing new positions. You know, they move safeties down to outside backers and outside backers down to defensive ends and become faster. And I think you know, St. Thomas really hasn't had a really close game, but if you watch watching each game that, you know, I have this whole season, they seem to get better every single week. Um, you know, I think they do a good job watching film and really critiquing coach K the defense coordinator does just a great job. You know, they may win 50 to seven, but there's always things that they can be improving on. And I think you have seen that, you know, throughout the season season and seen those improvements. Uh, I always like the, uh, the sideline vantage point on the game, you know, when the weather's nice or at least when it's not awful. Uh, mm. I, I feel like, you know, I'm, 
in a sense, a stuck up in the press box because often there's a hundred other games going on that uh, you know might occasionally require my attention on Twitter or something like that. But to really be on the sidelines and focus in on a game, I, I feel like you you learn a whole a whole heck of a lot. Yeah, you know, I think you're completely right, and I think the big thing is you can just kind of feel the emotions on both sidelines. You know, when when you're sitting up in the stands or in the press box, sometimes it's hard to you know get a good vibe. Uh, of the game but when you're right on the field you can kind of you know hear the kids uh, running around coaches talking and I think you pick up a lot more when you're right there on the sideline I agree with you uh Saturday you, you mentioned Jordan Roberts he looked pretty banged up uh was you know was holding uh, one of his shoulders pretty stiff not having his usual success running the ball and I know they tried to take it easy on him um mm-hmm. and and you mentioned Wabash uh you know really strong up front defensively but how does uh, Roberts look right now compared to earlier in the season you know, I, I think, you know, he, he kind of re-aggravated an injury he's had most of the year um, against St. John's. And I think they were they were getting Jack Kaiser back, who there was their backup running back most of the year, who got hurt uh, in the middle of the season. So he was supposed to be back last week, and then he kind of re, re-injured his uh, injury in the Wabash game too. So they've been pretty skinny at, at, at running back. But Jordan Roberts, I think, you know, it's an injury that I don't think he can, can get any worse. Um, it's just something, it's a pain deal that, you know, it's going to be really painful for him to play. But uh, as you've seen, he still had, you know, 18, I can't remember the numbers, but a decent amount of carries um, in last week's game, but not not the 35, 40 carries that he was getting earlier this year. Yeah, 16 carries for 61 yards for Roberts on Saturday. Uh, and I guess I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about uh, your old position group, the wide receivers, and, and then uh, it really would be uh, inappropriate to ignore uh, Charlie Dottle, who's had a great season catching the ball at tight end, too. No, you're completely right. You know, Charlie Dotto, the tight end, has really been, you know, prior in terms of yardage and big plays, almost, you know, as big of a player as, as the receivers have. But, you know, a guy like Jack Gilland, who's a senior, who's kind of been injured most most of his career, is having a really nice senior year. And then my brother Nick moved from running back to wide receiver with the Jordan Roberts game um, this offseason. I think it's been a good adjustment for him um, to play some slot back and then still do some running back. So I think they got a decent amount of weapons on the offensive side of the ball. And I think Charlie Doddle, as you mentioned, is, you know, a game changer at that tight end position. And and meanwhile, uh, special teams was where St. Thomas uh, had a lot of its success on Saturday. uh, Nick Walvogel returned a, a punt for a touchdown early on in the game. Uh, let's see, uh, score, uh, the, uh, the Tommy scored on a, uh, a fake field goal, uh, recovered an onside kick, um, uh, you know, even, uh, fooled Wabash with a pooch punt. Um, and it just seemed like that was, a that phase of the game has been working really well for St. Thomas this year. Yeah. Uh, coach Travis Walsh, uh, the special teams coordinator for, uh, coordinator for St. Thomas does a great job with those guys. And they really do stress that special teams truly is, you know, a third of the game. And I think that St. Thomas has cut a lot of flack, I think, this year just for running a lot of those two-point, going for two points and fake field goals and onside kicks. But, um, you know, when you watch the program, they do that against anybody. And you look back, you know, in the 2012 Stag Bowl, they ran a, they scored on a fake extra, a uh, fake field goal um, was their lone score in the game. So they really see it as, you know, they don't see them as trick plays necessarily. They're just, it's just good football in their minds. So uh, I think, you know, as you saw yesterday, um, I think it was the, really the swinging point in that game. And you take away the punt return um, early on, and I think that's maybe a, a 10-0 game, 7-0 game at halftime against Wabash. And I think the special teams was what really, you know, pushed St. Thomas, you know, from maybe a you know 20-7 to win to, you know, the 38-7 to win that it was. 
looking forward to uh, the upcoming game. Linfield coming back to town this weekend. Uh, what's the general mood of the team seeing the Wildcats in a national semifinal? And, and, and what have you seen of the Wildcats of late? Yeah, I, I think St. Thomas program has a lot of respect for the Linfield program. Um, played them twice in the playoffs in 2009-2010. We split those games. Uh, a lot of respect from St. Thomas coaching staff for them. Um, I got to know the Linfield program pretty well, playing with some of those guys um, that I played against in Europe. Um, but I know they have a ton, a ton of respect and really happy to get to play them again. Um, you know, it's a little different style than we'll see. Uh, in the Mayak, you know, they got a lot of speed. I know they got a really, really good front seven. I think it's that Alex Hoff, their D lineman is, is, is an absolute monster. So I think it's going to be a really good matchup uh, coming up this Saturday. Yeah. And meanwhile, for St. Thomas, this is now the third national semifinal appearance in the last five years. Yeah, you can't you can't really complain about that. I think uh, Coach Crusoe and that staff work so hard, you know, not only in, in season and off season to, you know, figure out how to, how to continue to grow that program. And obviously now I think we're getting to the point where, you know, your goal every year is, you know, to get to this point. Um, we hope that it continues. Um, but, yeah, can't complain. Three out of five years is pretty good. That's Fritz Vogel, the uh, former wide receiver, former return man, uh, and an All-American, and a uh, Gillardi Trophy finalist, and all sorts of great accolades as a player at St. Thomas, now a sideline guy for uh, WCCO Radio, uh, covering them on a weekly basis. Fritz, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks, Pat. I watched very little of this game on Saturday, Pat, because it was running concurrently with the Whitewater-Oshkosh game, which turned out to be the much more uh, entertaining finish. <laughs> you mean with an actually competitive game? Correct, correct, and uh, certainly two um, more evenly matched teams. Um, but at, not just Saturday, but throughout the season, I, I've been struck by how sound St. Thomas is defensively and, and how not just big, but how um, – how well they play on the offensive line, which, uh, you know, none of that's really makes for a, a pretty team, but it probably makes Glenn Caruso, a former uh, D3 center himself, probably makes him very proud. I turned the corner on the Tommies, I think, a little earlier than most, uh, if I remember our midseason podcast correctly, thinking they were just about as good as anybody. And, and you know, it, it's my view of it is a little bit more from afar because you're uh, you're you're based near St. Paul and so you can see them so easily you you watch them all the time and I watch them almost never um, but what I've seen this year is a team that can stake its claim at being the best in the nation. They have the opportunity to do that. Uh, and if so, and if they do it, uh, if they're able to win these final two games here, I think it would be by playing uh, sound defense, limiting turnovers, running the ball effectively, and, and busting out a jaw-dropping uh, play call every now and again. Yeah, you know, um, I, I definitely do see St. Thomas a lot. And one of the things that that puts in my head is that uh, when they did stuff on Saturday like – um, you know, the, uh, a pooch kick from their own 20 or so yard line on fourth down and, uh, and, and Wabash didn't have a, re a return guy out there because, because St. Thomas was not going to go at, uh, for it on fourth down deep in their own territory. They do the, the, they do the pooch kick with Gould a lot. Um, but they also run plays out of it. Um, you know, when they, uh, faked the field goal and ended up running in for a touchdown and then immediately followed with an onside kick to put the dagger in. These were things that, you know, were, were to me, bleedingly obvious from having seen St. Thomas play so many times during the course of, of this run of successful seasons that they've had. I, I was actually kind of surprised. It seemed like um, Wabash wasn't as prepared for that. But then I remembered, you know, even though the roster size in the playoffs has gotten larger over the past few years, you're still sometimes dealing with guys who are playing special teams for the first time 
in the playoffs because the roster has been cut to 58 players. You're not traveling maybe the 75 that you might for a, a conference regular season game or the unlimited number of players you might be able to dress for a home game. Um, you know, so maybe there's still an opportunity to catch some of those guys off guard. And, and also, you know, if you're a coach in the MAAC, uh, especially if you're um, Gary Foshing and the folks at St. John's, you've seen all that stuff multiple dozens of times and it doesn't surprise you. Whereas, you know, facing somebody who's never seen you before up, up close and in person, you might have a chance to pull some of those old things out and make them work. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And and I don't think that's questioning uh, Eric Rayburn and, and, and his coaching staff at Wabash and the job they do because they, they get – they, they, I don't think they're working with the the size and, and some physical skill at some positions than uh, than than some of the St. Thomas players are, but um, but St. Thomas has a nice way of being creative with its offense, with what to, you know to a maybe a, a first time watcher it, it seem it may seem a little plain, and then you see these ran these things that seem kind of random. They come out of nowhere, these plays that end up on uh, you know, a, a viral video like they had this season, and you think, oh, these guys are, are nuts. But, uh, but that's their, their style. They're looking for kind of any kind of advantage they can get on any team, and that's one of the things about playing uh, fresh teams in the playoffs is that you, you get a chance to, to see teams who haven't seen you before, don't have that, that book of, of, of uh, videos of, of your previous game, and, and Dunziella, the, uh, the, the ways you try to take advantage, uh, any little way you can get one. I thought you were going to say book of knowledge, and I was going to—that was going to be a, a, a quality, uh, in fact, a quality Minnesota D three reference. Man, I'm I'm sad that I missed that one. <laughs> All right, so uh, we've gotten uh, we've gotten Ryan Carlson thoughts and uh, Fritz Waldvogel's thoughts. How uh, about our take on the St. Thomas Linfield semifinal? Obviously, the the looming question, which is the same thing I asked uh, you know Ryan a, a little while ago, is obviously uh, the health of Sam Riddle, who's who's got to be a big factor. Um, but you know, also, um, St. Thomas hasn't had to worry so much about the pass in the playoffs. Uh, Wabash was just wasn't able to throw effectively. Laverne lost its number one quarterback early on in the game, and it's number two uh, not that long thereafter. Uh, St. John's lost its quarterback towards halftime, which I guess also kind of begs the question of how Riddle, how well Riddle would be effective even if he got to play on Saturday. Yeah, I think that you you phrased it perfectly, and I don't know if I have a whole lot to to add to that. And it, it puts Linfield in a tough situation because here you have a guy who who just passed for 500 yards, and and clearly he's your number two, but but um but he's coming in hot, and and I think at this point everybody on the on the Linfield team believes in the guy now. You know, you, you I'm sure they did before, um, at least nominally, but now you've seen them do it, and and and. I think they probably feel comfortable playing with either quarterback, but you don't want to get in a situation where, where Riddle is is maybe you know I don't know if he's not you know healthy enough to go, but not him not necessarily himself through a quarter or two quarters. You know when do you pull the plug on him? Yeah, I'm thinking about uh, 2012 when Oshkosh came to St. Thomas in the national semifinals with a All American quarterback who wasn't 100 percent either. Yeah, Nate Nate Ware, and and that at, this was the first. It's funny, both of those. This is the first year both those teams cycled back up to uh, to semifinal level in, in St. Thomas and uh, and Oshkosh. Uh, both uh, I, I, uh, both uh, Fritz and Ryan mentioned that they've got pretty solid receiving cores. Neither of them got a particularly uh, significant number of accolades. In fact, uh, nobody on the Northwest Conference uh, All Conference team at all from the Linfield receiving core. But I think uh, Charlie Dowdle uh, is at that tight end for the Tommies is something that Linfield just can't match. Yeah, I mean, um, Linfield, 
they they don't necessarily use a tight end a lot, so that's part of the reason why they can't match it. Um, but they got a really outstanding game from um, from their their wide receiving core on uh, on Saturday against Mary Harden Baylor. Um, you know, some of the guys have have made plays throughout the season and particularly throughout the playoffs. And obviously, you know, with a high powered offense, you don't get far without without having pretty decent receivers. But um, but, the you know, the game that Johnny Carroll had on on Saturday, um, at least nine catches. I know at one point during the broadcast, he, they, they checked in with nine. I don't know if he had another one after yeah. that. And I, yeah. I probably should. Yeah, I should pull up the. That's OK. The, uh, I got a 10 for 140 and two touchdowns. <laughs> and then Brian Balsiger, too, with seven for yeah. 150 and two. Yeah, I mean, I mean, they just, um, you know, that as a group. And I think we could probably say the same thing almost for for Mount Union. Uh, aside from uh, from Namdar, you know, they, it's kind of a, a more nondescript group of wide receivers that they've had in the past. Um, you know, none of these teams, and you could say the same thing about Whitewater too. Actually, you know, we'll talk about this a little later. But Marcus Hudson really starting to emerge as the their number one, uh, Chris Nelson's number one go to target. So you know, we're not dealing with a bunch of 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 you know, Cecil Shorts, Jasper Collins, Jay Kumaro type wide receivers in, in this final four here. But, um, you know, the, 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 the great thing about the Linfield uh, wide receiving core is, is they made uh, a bunch of plays when their quarterback needed it. And I think if uh, if St. Thomas needs a big play, they maybe if, you know, they may go to, to, to Nick Waldvogel, but, uh, you know, you may see them go to, to Charlie Dowd on the tight end. Um how about uh, Spencer Payne, the running back for Linfield? Uh, what do you think of him? I know he didn't have a bunch of rushing yards, but uh, he he caught a few balls, uh, well, more than a few, out of the backfield for them on Saturday. Yeah, he's a um, he's a he, I don't I don't want to say weird guy because weird is not the right word for it. His um, you know, they just they use him differently from week to week. On uh, on Saturday, it was nine catches. Uh, out of the backfield for 58 yards and 13 carries, so a guy gets 22 touches, but e- almost evenly split. Now connect uh, through the ball 54 times, so uh, so there weren't a whole lot of carries to go around for Spencer Payne, and I'm sure a lot of that was had to do with um, you know how well Mount Mary Harden Baylor was playing on defense. But um, you know, there's been times this season where they've given Payne a ton of carries, and and he, you know he doesn't mind. Uh, I mean, he can he can hold up with 25 or 30 carries and and that's maybe been a flaw of some previous Linfield teams where they didn't they didn't trust the running game enough and, and they kind of just put put it all in the quarterback's hands and uh and, and a guy would have to throw 54 times a game now I don't think that Linfield um you know is gonna is gonna want to come into uh to Minnesota and want to throw the ball that much um you know they they're going to try to establish Spencer Payne in this game and 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 we'll see if it works. It, it almost has more to do maybe with uh, with how that offensive line uh, lines up against uh, against St. Thomas's really really quick defense. Um, but uh, but if you know even if they can't get the run, the run game going with Spencer Payne, um, they'll they'll still throw to him out of the backfield, so he'll he'll get some touches. Uh, one last thing in looking ahead to Saturday in St. Paul, uh, weather, we're still a ways out, but, uh, expected to have a high in the mid thirties. Although you figure by the time it gets to kickoff at two uh, 30 central, uh, probably pretty close to freezing and, uh, probably lower than that by the time we get to halftime. More of a true representation of what it, what it's like to be in Minnesota than it was this past weekend where it was fairly balmy. Time to move on to the Mount Union Wesley game, and we're joined by D3Football.com columnist Jason Bowen, who is also the color analyst for Wesley Broadcast on WDEL Radio and was in Alliance, Ohio on Saturday. Jason, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. 
Yeah, you bet. Uh, burning question out of this game uh, is how good is Mount Union? Uh, it sure looked like Wesley pushed them better than anybody else has been able to do this season. Uh, yeah, Mount Union's an, Mount Union's an uh, outstanding football team. I mean, uh, they have a lot of weapons offensively and defensively. I think the changeover from years before is, you know, they really want to run the football. Um, but uh, Tyrese Scott, I, think, I know he's taken some flack for maybe not being as accurate, but, you know, that might be. It's it's tough to follow a two-time Gallardi Trophy winner like uh, like Kevin Burke, you know, and this is his first year stepping back in. But he really seemed to have a nice timing uh, with uh, their receiver Roman Namdar. Uh, you know, he throws the ball really well on time, and those guys had some nice timing routes on comeback routes and out routes, and and even to some of the other guys uh, um, like their tight end Lane Carter, uh, he hit him on a nice out route. And I don't know where Mount Union's been hiding that guy all year, but he's like. Six foot four, two hundred and fifty pounds, and and uh, was you know Wesley secondary is not slow, and he was just gone down the sideline. But uh, yeah, offensively, um, you know a lot of weapons there. Um, uh, defensively, you know they're outstanding. You know Wesley has a and one of the best. I've been watching Division three football now for you know coaching and broadcasting those things for um, you know over twenty years now, and. And, uh, you know, they have all the pieces there that they need to do. Um, you know, Wesley's offense is one of the best I've seen. And, uh, you know, they did give up some yardage. They gave up some points. Um, but, you know, they make plays when they have to. Um, um, you know, they stopped Wesley. They turned him over a bunch of times with a few strips. Uh, they made some stops in the red zone. And, uh, you know, so they're a solid, solid defense. And, uh, you know, they may give up some yards. I think this is the first time they were challenged this year. But, uh, you know, they don't have to take a backseat to anybody in Division III. Um, you talked about the defense, and, and I want to ask about the secondary a little bit. Uh, I know that uh, Josh Stewart was out, one of the starting safeties. Uh, Trey Jones went out uh, in the middle of the game uh, for Mountain Union. What did the uh, the Purple Raiders secondary look like, especially against a guy like Callahan, who's, uh, you know, really primed to take advantage of those sorts of things? Well, yeah, Jones went out, and uh, Mount Union brought in a, a freshman out of uh, Pittsburgh, uh, Lewis Berry, He's a little guy about 5'7", 160, and he was matched up against James Okiku, who goes about 6'3", you know, 205. Uh, so Wesley took advantage of that uh, a little bit. They got a couple of touchdowns, but, you know, I, I think Barry, he did end up having an interception. It was uh, Callahan was trying to throw the ball away on the sideline and just um, didn't get it far enough out of bounds, and it kind of just came down to him. Uh, but Barry made another couple plays where, you know, obviously he's got the speed of being a little guy to stick with Okiki and, uh, you know, Callahan put it right in there. But he did a nice job using his hands just to kind of mess up the throw a little bit. So um, Mountain Union did have to rotate some coverages, um, you know, put a safety over the top eventually uh, to his side, just, you know, just because he was playing well for. But, you know, that's, you know, six, three against five, seven is, uh, yeah. you know, something that that Wesley was going to take advantage. And, you know, then Wesley, that opened up a little bit for them in the middle with Kyle George's big tight end and uh, and those sorts of things. Offensively, you know, you mentioned Scott and Namdar. Boy, we have talked a lot about those guys on the podcast over the, the course of this season. So there are a lot of the focus on offense, but uh, it seems like uh, it's Logan Nemeth, the running back, who's been the key guy of late. He's the guy who's been in the mix for a while, but now, you know, finally the number one running back, uh, you know, for a long stretch here. What style of runner is he? What are his strengths? You know, he finishes runs, but I, I think the thing I was most impressed with, and I was looking back just at uh, um, some film from last year, the Wesley Mount Union game, is uh, you know how well coached their running backs are and intelligent and they are in making cuts. And uh, um, Logan 
of course, broke the 73-yard run towards the end of the game that kind of sealed the game. And, you know, he just kind of talked about, uh, you know, he didn't say he saw the blitz coming or something like that, but he's, he, Wesley was coming with an all-out blitz. And, you know, he had the knowledge that, hey, that linebacker's probably got me, and I know I'm getting the ball. And he had kind of thought it out before. If I make this cut here or get to this gap, um, you know, I got him. And he was able to break that run, and then Namdar gave him a great block downfield and got him in the end zone and, and sealed the win for the Purple Raiders. Um, you know, as, as far as the, the Wesley offense also versus the, the Mountain Union defense, it uh, looks like they did at least a decent job against Tom Lally or at least kept him off of the uh, out of the sack line on the on the defensive stats. You know, there's a guy who's the Purple Raiders all time sack leader. He's just been uh, destroying opposing quarterbacks. He and the rest of the defense over the course of this playoff run. How did that matchup look to you? Wesley's offensive line has been maybe a little maligned in the last few years, but I think that's the one area that, you know, they averaged 600 yards a game this year. Uh, that's really come together. So uh, he went up a good against a good offensive line. Against the run, uh, he was, you know, ferocious. He finishes plays. He's got a high motor. Um, and then, you know, you have an experienced quarterback like Joe Callahan who sees blitzes coming and just the design of the Wesley offense where uh, it's designed to get out quickly. You know, you ask any tackle to get, you know, sacks and those sorts of things, and it's kind of tough. So, um, you know, it, it wasn't a matter of Lally played poorly or, you know, uh, Wesley shut down Lally. It was just a matter of, uh, you know, that's how it goes sometimes, especially when you have a senior veteran quarterback that you know, plays at the level that Joe Callahan plays out and can get the ball out quickly and, and recognize where the blitz is coming from. And, and the Wesley offense did a nice job, uh, you know, picking up the blitz sometimes. And then, of course, you got Callahan, who's hard to sack anyway. Um, you know, he's just so elusive back there. I just, I, I think back to the, the North Central game where I actually saw him. It was almost like a basketball ball fake. The guy was coming in to sack him, and he held the ball out like a ball fake. And the guy went to swipe at the ball, and he ducked under him, and then he fired it down 20 yards downfield. So Callahan's tough to sack, and uh, you know, and the design of the Wesley offense just to get it out quick. You know, Callahan was a, a finalist for the Glardy Trophy last year. I would expect that uh, we'll we'll have the results of that voting uh, middle of the day on Monday when this podcast comes out. But I would be surprised if he's not one of the finalists again this year. Um, you know, he's a guy who, at the end of the season, was the uh, single season all time leader in Division Three in passing yards, the best uh, passing total by a Division Three quarterback ever with more than five thousand yards. You know, obviously having had. Uh, you're, I'm giving you the opportunity to give a little Joe Callahan retrospective on his career as a D3 quarterback here. Uh, well, you know, um, he's he's one of the best I've, I've seen. I mean, and like I said, over 20 years of watching it. Um, just leadership, competitive. He's, you know, they talk about, you've heard about Joe Cool. He's never too high, never too low, but he's got this this intensity underneath him uh, and, and the guys like to follow him. And, uh, now, I, I looked back a few weeks ago when, when he did something and Shane McSweeney, Wesley's uh, first-team All-American quarterback back in 2011, um, just tweeted the GOAT. And, uh, you know, he and Joe became friendly. Of course, he backed up McSweeney back in 2011. And, uh, yeah, he's just one of the – he he takes so much of the load of the offense and the decision-making, with the, and they kept feeding him more and more. And uh, he just handled it so well. And then just the play at the level of efficiency that he did, um, you know, and he stepped up his game. Um, you know, he's always a, a good evade and keep his eyes downfield. You know, I'm, you go back to Tyree Scott, I think that's one thing that 
maybe Callahan has over him a little bit. And Scott is, you know, a tr- much, much better elusive runner when he gets loose. But, uh, yeah, he's just been tremendous. It's, uh, it's going to be a big loss for Wesley. It'll be interesting to see what happens down the line. But, uh, yeah, he's one of the best I've ever seen on the Division Three level. And I, I know offensive coordinator Chip uh, Knapp felt that way when I talked to him a couple weeks ago. Uh, and finally, of course, we have uh, what one of uh, one of your fellow D3 writers uh, termed Stag Bowl 42 and a half uh, coming up this <laughs> week between uh, Mountain Union and Wisconsin Whitewater. Uh, what's your take on that game? And how do you think that's uh, what do you see coming forth this week? It's the two the two giants going up against each other. And, uh, you know, Whitewater is just, you know, experience seeing them in the past. I really, really caught a half of them this year, but. You know, just you read about them and you keep up with them, and uh, just so big up front on the offensive line and and the ability to run the football, and then you know to go play action off of that, and uh, just so well coached and those sorts of things, and an aggressive defense that always seems to be in the right place, and uh, you know Mountain Union. Um, I was talking to Mike Drass, and he was down for the Gallardi Trophy uh, ceremony when Callahan was a finalist last year, and. And, you know, Mount Union's not that big anymore. I mean, you think we talked about it a little bit. You know, 10 years ago, they had those 300-pound line. You know, this year, um, you know, their guys are big, but, you know, they're they're 280, and they're made for that zone-blocking scheme, and they're extremely well-coached. So, um, you know, I think it's going to be a matter of, you know, Mount Union doesn't turn the ball over too often. And uh, if they can do that and execute efficiently, I mean, if I'm attacking Mount Union, I'm, I'm going to try and keep Scott in the pocket and I'm going to stack the box with a run and make him try and beat me from the pocket. Um, so if Whitewater can do that, stop uh, Logan Nemeth, uh, they should be in pretty good shape. But, uh, you know, if, if Mount can, Mount didn't have a, a lot of huge plays other than that big play to Carter I talked about earlier. But, uh, you know, I think that's my attack if I'm Whitewater, and then it's going to be up to Scott to make some plays down the field uh, to his receivers. That's Jason Bowen. You can read his coverage in uh, D3Football.com's Around the East, uh, going back through earlier this season and some uh, playoff coverage as well. Jason, thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks, Pat. So this is totally unfair to, to view this game this way, but because of the way that it broke, uh, it, it, it's just what it reminds me of. Um the, uh, the the Joe Callahan comeback almost materialized again. Uh, you go back um, the, the parallels with 2013. You go back to uh, to a couple years ago. Same round of the playoffs. Same field. Mount Union gets out to a 31-0 lead. Uh, Callahan starts leading Wesley back. Uh, a lot of the same guys on, on that Wesley team, and a lot of the same guys on that Mount Union team. Um, Callahan finishes with uh, 633 passing yards, eight touchdowns. They fall three points short. There were Mount Union people at that time that said, hey, if, if Wesley had had five more minutes, they would have beaten us in that game. I don't think that certainly wasn't the case last year. Mount Union scored the first 70 points last season in a 70-21 win. This season, uh, Mount Union um, led 49-14 at halftime. They, they went up 21-0. Wesley got it to 21-14. So at, at a point there, it was a game. And then they just kind of went nuts in this six-minute stretch of uh, of the second quarter so mount union's almost cruising at halftime and then wesley comes out second half uh puts together uh three touchdown drives they're able to get stops now they're getting off the field uh they actually picked off uh Therese scott at one point uh to set up an, a, a short field and uh so the game's now 49 35 uh wesley has the ball they drive to mount union's 13 yard line 
And uh, on fourth down, um, I think it was Mike Furter, actually, uh, one, one of the, the defensive linemen from Mountain Union who used to be a wide receiver, uh, chases down uh, Callahan. Callahan kind of had to try, you know, try to make something happen on the run. That's incomplete. A couple plays later, Logan Nemeth uh, takes it 73 yards for a touchdown that puts that game away. But there was a basically not just a parallel with 2013, but there, here, here's a game where Mountain Union you know, gets out to an early lead. And, uh, Wesley scores a couple touchdowns to make it a one-score game, and then Mount, Mountain Union just goes nuts. They do what they do. It's things over at halftime, you're thinking. You know, go switch to another game. Watch one of the other playoff games that's going on because it's 49-14. You know, Wesley's about to get 70 dropped on him again. And to Wesley's credit, um, they, they played well in the second half, and for some reason that, that makes the takeaway um, a lot about Wesley. And uh, and it doesn't necessarily have to be uh, have to be that way because Mountain Union's really good. I I think what the what what's going to happen though is you know Mountain Union's about to have a two game season. Uh, you know if they're fortunate enough to play two more games, that's much more difficult than uh, than the season they've had to date. So you know Mountain Union's been uh, been the clear number one on on my ballot since October, but it's not necessarily certain that they're the best team left. I, I think all four teams have a pretty legitimate shot at winning this thing. Uh, so yeah, Mountain Union's into that into a two game season basically because you know no disrespect to to John Carroll and Wesley, what Mountain Union has seen so far doesn't compare to what they may see the next couple weeks. Uh, but the Purple Raiders have a very good defense when uh, when Tom Lally isn't wreaking havoc from that defensive line, Ferda or one of the other linemen is. And they have a cleanup tackler at linebacker and Hank Spencer and all everything safety in the mode of Kostelnik and Driscoll and Alex Kochef. Uh, their wide receiver talent, I don't think it's as stunning or as spread out as it has been in some seasons. But uh, but Namdar is a big ta- target for Scott. I think if Scott has to run, uh, his open field moves are, are, are so sudden he can make people miss. And, uh, and you know, the key there is, is Nemeth in the backfield. They still use a bunch of B.J. Mitchell, the smaller, uh, shiftier running back. But Nemeth has really become a, a multifaceted runner. And I, th- I think that's, uh, that's a, a, a big advantage for, for Mountain Union uh, offensively. And I think really probably the key is, is how the Mountain Union offensive line deals with the Whitewater front seven. Yeah, this is always the time of the year to start paying attention. Uh, you know, we I don't know if we even joke. I think we're pretty serious about the fact that uh, the first at least 12, uh, maybe 13 weeks of the regular season, you know, Mountain Union just doesn't get tested. Um, and we just don't learn anything useful from most of their games. But, uh, but this is always the time. You know, the number of competitive quarterfinals that the Purple Raiders have played in this uh, expanded, this five-round playoff era, you know, the ones that didn't involve conference rematches anyway with the likes of Capital or John Carroll, the number of competitive games at this uh, time of the season is pretty small for them. Yeah, so in, in that sense, Wesley does us, did us all a service. That's right. They forced us to pay some attention. And, you know, and also, I'm sure in honesty – uh, if you're a if if you're the Whitewater defensive coordinator or the secondary coach, I think they really did do you a service. You get a chance to see what uh, what your team looks like against uh, one of the top, if not the top, passing offense in Division Three. Absolutely. Let's move on to the Whitewater Oshkosh game, and we're joined by D3Sports.com columnist Josh Smith, who has covered the WIAC extensively in the course of his career and was at Saturday's game in Oshkosh. Uh, Josh, thanks for taking the time to join us. Yeah, it's my pleasure, Pat. Yeah, this uh, so that game on Saturday, that was one of the two great games of the day. So if you could just uh, talk so, us through it for a bit, that would be great. Yeah, it was actually a very fascinating flow to the game. 
because Whitewater got out to great starts in both the first quarter and the third quarter, and it felt like both times maybe they were going to take the momentum and just kind of run away with things. But uh, both times Oshkosh found a way to kind of slow down Whitewater temporarily, get themselves back in the game, and make things interesting. Uh, Whitewater was running pretty much at will in the first quarter. Um, They outrushed Oshkosh 120 yards to 27 in the first quarter of play and were up 10-0. And then um, where Whitewater maybe faltered the most is they got two interceptions in Oshkosh territory but only turned those turnovers into three points. That kept Oshkosh around. Um, Then they were able to get a field goal from Greg Rand. And then Devin Linsenmeyer, uh, who was filling in for an injured Dylan Hecker, um, scored his first touchdown of the game with 30 seconds left before halftime. That tied things at 10 uh, at the break. Whitewater then kind of got things going in the passing game in the third quarter. Marcus Hudson caught a couple of touchdown passes. One was a 48-yard strike right after the break. Then he caught another five-yard touchdown. Jordan Ratliff scored, and Whitewater was up 31-16. The touchdown Oshkosh scored in the third quarter um, was a touchdown pass from Brett Casper to Cody Moon. The important thing there was that the point-after attempt was no good. That kind of left Oshkosh chasing points. They score a couple times in the fourth quarter to rally, and uh, but they have to go for two after they score to get within 31-29. They complete a pass short of the goal line. Whitewater stands them up. And then after a Whitewater punt, Oshkosh got one more try. And the uh, Warhawk defense stood up and uh, forced the turnover on downs and then ran out the clock for a win. So a pretty exciting back-and-forth event. The the two games that these two teams played this season, uh, both very close games, obviously uh, coming down to a, a play here or there at the end, but really kind of significantly different in style. Um, you know, obviously a, a really low scoring game in the regular season than a higher scoring game this time around. Um, since you've seen Whitewater uh, much more than I have this season, um, is is that what the progression has been for the Warhawks this season? Have they really improved uh, more on the offensive side? Yeah, I really think they have found their groove a little bit more on offense. Um, I think that was the biggest thing that Coach Kevin Bullis was trying to stress leading up to this game is that his team isn't wasn't the same team that played there the the first time around, and he also emphasized that Ashgash's team wasn't the same team that he played the first time around. He thought both had gotten better. I think Whitewater has demonstrated that they've gotten better. Um, Jordan Ratliff has obviously um, started to find a real nice rhythm in the backfield. He's been running very, very well over the second half of the season. And then Whitewater's passing game has evolved quite a bit since the beginning of the year. Uh, Chris Nelson took over as the starter uh, this season. And it took a little while, I think, for him to get into a routine, uh, get the timing down with his receivers. And as the seasons wore on, Marcus Hudson, who had the two touchdowns uh, catches this weekend, has kind of emerged as a as a number one threat for Nelson to throw to. Yeah, I mean Nelson statistically it didn't look like he had a stellar day on Saturday. Uh, I but I'm just looking at you know under 50 percent completions and that sort of thing. Um, you know how did he look? You know more I guess in in real life rather than on paper. Yeah, he he looked very sharp in that third quarter in particular when they started to move the ball through the air. 
Uh, he didn't need to throw the ball a whole lot in the first half, given the way that Whitewater was running the ball. And then in the second quarter, Oshkosh was doing a nice job of controlling the ball themselves. So I think he only had four attempts in the first half, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so he didn't have to do a whole lot. When he got to the second half, he looked very good in that third quarter. Uh, he had a ton of time to throw the ball. The offensive line for Whitewater did an excellent job pass protecting. However, I would say that the Oshkosh defense did a very nice job downfield in coverage. And there's a lot of times where Nelson would stand back there for, you know, several, several seconds and you were just waiting for someone to get open. And sometimes someone did other times he'd have to throw it away or, you know, kind of make a, a safer pass that maybe didn't get caught or didn't go for as many yards. Hudson and the rest of the receiving core seems like one of the big differences from earlier on in the season, too. I mean, Hudson basically was a, a non-factor when I saw uh, Whitewater at Morningside and then a, a complete turnaround to uh, where they were in the entering the playoffs, especially the game I saw at Wheaton the previous week. Yeah, he's really gotten into a nice rhythm with Chris Nelson. Um, he talked a little bit in the postgame press conference after Saturday's game about the their ability to get their timing down a little bit more. And he said that kind of the success he's had in the receiving game is just because he's getting a little bit more uh, familiar with Nelson. And um, I think we're seeing that a little bit more each week. Um, this week, Nelson passed for 170 yards in the entire game. Hudson caught six passes for 106 yards. So they're certainly building a, a pretty nice rapport. Yeah, is he a guy who really stretches the field for them? Yeah, he can at times. He's got pretty nice speed. Uh, the long touchdown that Whitewater scored um, just seconds into the uh, third quarter was one in which he kind of got loose behind the defender, uh, made a nice catch, and then just broke it the rest of the way. Uh, it does certainly give them a little bit more of a vertical threat. Uh, defensively, and especially uh, coming from the secondary over the course of the last couple of years, uh, during these playoff runs, uh, the the Warhawks have you know had opportunities and have uh, returned interceptions for touchdowns. They've scored on defense. Um, how's the? I know that obviously, you know Brady Gravel graduated. Marcus McLinn is gone. You know it's a, a completely new secondary. How have they performed over the course of the season? They've played very well, actually, and, and they they knew coming into the season that they had big shoes to fill when you got a couple of All-Americans the year before graduate and move on. So uh, those guys have been up to the challenge. Uh, they had they they faced that uh, Bell Haven air raid attack first thing this season, played very well there. And they've done a pretty nice job uh, as they work their way through the WIAC schedule as well. They made a few big plays uh, this weekend as well. Um, their leading tacklers were actually Ryan Winsky and Dylan Morang out of that secondary. And then a guy like Vince Mason, who's had limited playing time in previous seasons, I thought he came up with one of the biggest plays of the game. On Oshkosh's final possession, they completed – it appeared they were going to complete a pass on third down. Mason came up with a big hit and kind of knocked the ball loose for an incomplete pass, brought up fourth down, and uh, Whitewater successfully defended it and was able to run out the clock. You know, it's things like that I don't think should be overlooked. They, they do a lot of things of that nature and, and just play the game very sound, even though they've lost some very talented guys from the secondary from last season. I think they've really answered that call and have played – pretty mistake-free for the most part. 
All right, so Whitewater's going from one rematch to another, uh, taking on Mountain Union this week, this time in the national semifinals. Uh, what's the what's the take around the program of uh, facing Mountain Union again? Uh, what do you think the, um, you know, I don't know, the mood or the attitude or, or that sort of thing is for the Warhawks right now? Yeah, you know, I sensed in the post-game press conference that they were pretty excited about this. I, you know, I, and I, I mean excited. I don't want to imply anything, but... You know, they didn't seem cocky about it. They didn't seem like um, they were going to make a bigger deal of this matchup than they would any other matchup. But it's a it's a kind of a change of scenery going down to play Mountain Union in Ohio. I think they they seemed interested in that challenge. And I think they're just excited that they're, you know, still playing uh, in the postseason after going up against, you know, a WIAC rival and a team they lost to earlier this season. Well, Josh, I, I know uh, the eyes of uh, Division Three will be on Alliance Ohio at least for three and a half hours on Saturday before they move to St. Paul. So I think we're all looking forward to see how that game turns out. Uh, thanks for joining us here on the podcast. Yeah, anytime, Pat. I, I watched a lot of this game on Saturday, Pat, and it, it gave the Linfield, Mary Harden, Baylor game a run for its money as far as being entertaining. Um, Josh talked about how it was kind of one good quarter for Whitewater, then one for Oshkosh, then one for Whitewater, and one for Oshkosh, and Whitewater just kind of hung on there at the end. You know, even after they stopped the the two point conversion, and uh, that was kind of a play where um, where Brett Casper rolled out. There was nobody there, um, and he kind of bought some time, and then basically had to dump it off to Zach Kasubowski, and um, uh, he just got tackled. You know, about a you know half a foot short of the goal line. So they didn't get the two-point conversion that would have tied the game with 342 left. They got the ball back, though. And so it was a very tense finish um, for uh, for Whitewater. It ended up uh, not even getting in the field goal range. But there was a, a point, even though Whitewater is leading that game 31-29, that if Oshkosh gains about 20 more yards, uh, you know they have a chance to attempt a game-winning field goal with a kicker who's missed a PAT earlier in the game. So there would have been a lot of, lot of drama at that finish in, uh, in the Whitewater D really, really, uh, really stepped up when, uh, when they needed it. I was most impressed by far by, uh, by the Whitewater offensive line, uh, especially in the second half. Chris Nelson just having seriously like six, seven, eight seconds to throw. Um, and Josh mentioned this too, that there was you know, part of that you give credit to, to Oshkosh because there wasn't always guys open, even though he had all that time to throw. Uh, Nelson is clearly not a take off and run kind of guy. He, he'll sit back there. Um, and, uh, and and just take as much time as the offensive line will give them. But to me, it kind of, at times, it looked like pass skeleton. And what I mean is if, if you never play, there's a drill, you know, seven on seven, um, or, uh, or a drill where you just basically, the linemen are off on one side of the practice field doing what linemen do. And then everyone else is over here, and you do your blitz packages and all, and all your different coverages. And uh, it's, it's just called pass skeleton. And uh, it, it looked like that for, uh, for, for Chris Nelson, that he was just throwing with no worry at all about pressure and uh and so um it, it definitely seemed like nelson looked in key situations looked uh marcus hudson's way uh third downs uh when they needed key plays uh, along the sideline to get a you know get a completion and get out of bounds uh they went to him uh they still have joe worth uh as a wide receiver but i think i made a comment earlier in the year that that whitewater doesn't have that that oomph offensive player like they've had in uh in in past years and now they really have two of them the way that uh that Jordan Ratliff has played in the second half of the season in the way uh the way Marcus Hudson has emerged 
Got to give a lot of credit to Oshkosh. And uh, I mean, I, I thought um, they got a, a performance off the bench uh, for about 130 rushing yards. That was uh, pretty outstanding. And um, that was a key factor in, in keeping it close for Oshkosh. That was uh, Devin Linsenmeyer, who uh, 130 yards rushing in uh, only 10 carries. And then he had 64 yards uh, uh, receiving as well. So uh, basically they lost their top running back and uh, didn't affect them at all, and, and uh, I'll be interested to see uh, what kind of role they find for Lindsey Meyer next season. He had about 80 carries coming into this game, so Oshkosh will have to give him uh, a bigger role next year. And the thing that's always consistent about Whitewater when they get this deep into the playoffs is they just play sound football, no turnovers on Saturday, and that was, of course, in a two-point game, a pretty big factor. So coming up uh, next week, we've gone a little bit over an hour into this podcast, and we're finally talking specifically about uh, the Mount Union-Whitewater game that's coming up on Saturday. Uh, it was Adam Turr earlier this weekend who uh, jokingly refer- referred to this game as Stag Bowl 42-and-a-half, right? I mean, it's uh, the two national titleists from uh, nine of the past 10 years, eight of the past 17, I don't know, whatever. Um, but, uh, you know, what are your thoughts uh, kind of right out of the gate on this game? A main thought, of course, is is how that that Mountain Union defensive line, which is excellent, and then how they match up with the the Whitewater offensive line because uh, that unit is also excellent. And that's you know these teams, I guess, skill player wise, aren't quite as loaded as they've been some years in the past. Although you know, 13 games in, um, players have started to emerge, and we've we've name dropped a bunch of them so far already uh, in, in this podcast. I think that's your your key matchup to watch. But I think a, a pretty huge key actually could be how Mount Union deals with uh, with not having success offensively right off the bat. They blow teams out to such a degree that um, there there's it's it's just hard for them to imagine going two or three series in a row without, um, you know, what if they go three and out a couple of times? How, do they deal with, with not having success right off the bat? I just don't think it's going to be quite as easy for them. Uh, and they're going to have to, um, you know, struggle and grind a little bit. And there were, even in previous years when Mountain Union had been dominant, they'd always kind of, or they often had had that game uh, last season. It was those games against John Carroll where they had, they had to dig deep and win. They haven't had that game yet this year. Uh, they've only punted 33 to, uh, 43 times uh, this season, which is a shade over three a game. And I'd wager that a bunch of those punts have come you know, either by the second unit when the game is out of reach or or something like that. So I think for, for Mountain Union, especially offensively, uh, this will be a bit more of a slugfest. Uh, Mountain Union defense should match up well against uh, the Whitewater offense, so that should be a slugfest uh, as well. You know, uh, Whitewater coach Kevin Bullis talked in the postgame news conference uh, last weekend at Wheaton about how his team handled the uh, the Thunder passing attack, uh, which was reasonably well, but not perfectly. Um, you know, that was a that was a pretty good test for them, and they didn't completely pass it, although they uh, they did uh, they did get some stops. They did let up some uh, some big balls that kept. Uh, uh, Wheaton drives alive. I, I think obviously Mountain Union is going to be a significant test there. They've uh, certainly thrown the ball pretty well this year. Although I'll just go back to the the seventy five thousand times it's been said about Tory Scott and his the question as to how accurate he'll be under pressure. Who knows? Because he hasn't faced a whole lot of pressure. I am so good at lightning rounds. And we're on to the lightning round. 
Uh, you know, we, so we're down to our final four teams, and uh, if you're a D3Football.com top 25 voter, you could start filling out uh, the bottom 21 of your ballot now, I would think. I think it's pretty clear that uh, these four teams are the, the best teams remaining standing, and, and you know, that begs the question, who's the fifth-ranked team, right? Is, uh, um, you know, someone who's lost recently, uh, someone who lost on Saturday, someone who lost earlier. Um, from my point of view, at least right now, I think it'd be kind of difficult to make a case for someone other than Wisconsin Oshkosh, since they're the only one to beat somebody who's still alive in the final four. But I would think, I guess, if uh, Linfield goes on to win the title, that Mary Harden Baylor has to get pretty strong consideration for that spot, too. Yeah, that's actually a great point about Oshkosh. And, and I guess I'm one person who, who, or one voter who believes that the fortunes of, of teams are, are very much tied to these teams are still alive. You know, we may view St. John's differently if St. Thomas goes on to win it all. Whereas if Linfield wins by a couple touchdowns, you know, who St. Thomas, I mean, St. John's may not even crack the top 10. So their fortunes are sort of tied. Uh, you mentioned how Mary Harden Baylor fortunes should be tied to Linfield. I don't, I don't know the answer to that question yet. Uh, I thought Mary Harden Baylor certainly was, was the most entertaining team that lost on, uh, on Saturday, but yeah, I'd probably go Oshkosh as well. I was going to say, um, does that mean Oshkosh is boring? No, I just meant that that I guess because they went up twenty-one nothing and then kind of uh, had to hold on there, that that they were the underdog most likely to win. Even though Oshkosh w- made it a game, uh, they were they were trailing by double digits in the first half. Then they came back and tied it at the half, and then they fell down by double digits again. So they were spending a lot of that game uh, trying to rally to get back into it. Um, here's a lightning round item. I, I, I just like the accents on the podcast this week. Got a little Minnesota and Wisconsin in there. Uh, I, I, that always uh, trips me out. I didn't think Jason Bowen had an accent at all, but probably our Midwest listeners uh, think, uh, think a guy from Delaware probably heard his accent and didn't hear the accents from Fritz and from Josh. Uh, I also like that when we get down to four games, we can really focus in on, on each particular game and talk to someone who was at each site. It's, it's just something that we it's not really possible for us when there are 110, 120 games going on uh, during the regular season. Yeah. Uh- yeah, definitely. Um, I want to ask you who you voted for the, for the Glardy Trophy. And if it's okay with you, before you say, I'd just rather say I'd rather not uh, talk about my ballot just because I have a suspicion I will be part of the ceremony. So I don't. I want to kind of re- re- keep that neutrality. But I was kind of curious to see how you uh, how you let it settle out. Assuming that you guys that you probably waited like I did until uh, all as many games were played as possible. Yeah, well, especially when so many of the the real key contenders are still active, you know, you kind of um, kind of almost owe it to the guys to let them play as many games as possible and kind of prove to you that um, that it, that it's uh, you know that they're deserving. I think there are guys, um, you know, we have some tackles who are, who are up for the award. We have a safety who's up for the award. These are guys that now that you know that you should be watching them, you can keep an extra eye on them. I mean, I, I, me personally, I remember Coach F from, uh, from previous Stag Bowls, and, and I like watching secondary play anyway, so I would have noticed him. But, but David Simmett, the tackle from, um, from uh, St. Thomas, obviously he's a noticeable guy because he's 6'9". Um, but, you know, you, you focus in a little bit more on a guy when you know he's up for the Gallardi Trophy. To answer the question, I, I think, and I haven't written it in pen yet or emailed it into. to uh, – to um, the the J Club, 
But uh, I think I'm going to go with Joe Callahan, and and that that performance in the second half didn't hurt. But I think it, it's mostly a body of work type of award. The, these things are so weighted to quarterbacks and running backs and wide receivers putting up numbers. And I I, I try to give the safeties and the tackles, and uh, there's linebacker in there. I try to give them a fair shot as well. Um, but there was one kind of moment that stood out for me for Callahan. Uh, I saw him um, – in the second round against Johns Hopkins, uh, had a bad first quarter through three interceptions, you know, bounced back to lead his team to 42 points. Uh, and then the, the story came out in the post-game press conference after the game that he's he been playing with five stitches, I believe. You know, I may have the number wrong, but he's playing with stitches in his head because uh, he, he kind of it was a funny story, and I shouldn't tell it for him, but it's some basically uh, kind of like woke up and hit his head in the morning because his mom was trying to wake him up or something. It was it was kind of like a you know kind of a harmless, funny story. And he got out of bed. He he got startled. Anyway, the point is the guy, you know, threw led led the team to forty two points with stitches in his head. That happened like the Monday before the game. And and if you know, you add that to all the community service and the and the accomplishments on the field, I think it's a very deserving um player if you get him on stage pat ask him ask him that story and see if he'll he'll tell it for the for the big crowd um you're assuming i haven't already made notes on that in the last uh, two minutes while you were telling that story gotcha <laughs> gotcha yeah and look i mean all these guys are all winners i swear to you you know we get the packets uh we do the due diligence at least you and i read through you know the vast majority of the of the packet the stats we probably already know but there's a letter from the president letter from the coaches in there and i though i i, I get swayed by those um and then you, but you look at a guy like simmet from from st thomas um the list of community service stuff that he does is like you know half the page, and um, you 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 know just by reading Glenn's uh, Coach Caruso's letter, you you know you can tell it's it's genuine. He's not doing it just to rack up a bunch of community service stuff. You know he'd be he could be a football player and a and a he's like a accounting major or something like that. He could just do that and that would take up all his time, but he does all this other stuff because he's called to it. I think when you you meet the the Ten Gallardi um, Trophy, what are these semifinalists and yeah. and the four finalists. Um, Wednesday in Salem. When you meet them, you realize they really are, and it's cliche, but they're they're all winners, man. There's there's one guy who's going to win the trophy, but these guys are all going to do something uh, in life. Uh, here's a guy who uh, whose name has already come up in this podcast and isn't on the Gallardi ballot, but uh, you know, going back to Linfield wide receiver named Johnny Carroll, which is about one of the most Division three things possible. Um, but uh, this is a this is a while back now. But if, if you're a long time, I don't know how long that has to be about ten years follower of Division three, uh, you might remember that in basketball, Baldwin Wallace had a starting point guard whose name was John Carroll. I actually made a point of going out of my way to listen to a Baldwin Wallace versus John Carroll University game uh, that year, and that was really confusing to listen to. Just because John Carroll had the ball going in against John Carroll. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The only brief thing it reminds me of is on the on the drive to Wesley, there's a sign and um, it says like turn right to go to Hope, turn left to go to Wilmington, and go and straight you go to Centerville, and it's spelled like Center of Kentucky. And, and there's, so there's three D three schools on this one sign on the way to a D three school. Um, you know, we talked about this. We briefly kind of tapped touched on this in the podcast, and this is just one huge difference between D three and the NFL. Or if you watch uh, huge college football. Um, on Saturdays, I don't know why you, you would when there's D three going on, but whatever. Um, the uh, 
the injuries, man. Like right now, we have Sam Riddle and and, and Jordan Roberts, so the, the quarterback for Linfield, running back for um for St. Thomas, dealing with injuries. They're not, they're, as far as we know, they're not ruled completely out. They could play next week. They could not play again for the rest of the season. We just get such little access to injury information, and uh, that's one big difference um, between between our level and some of the other levels that uh, that get more coverage. I think if it were on me, uh, Roberts would probably, I would say Roberts would probably get about 20 carries on Saturday. And I don't know if Riddle plays. I just, <clears throat> I mean, I literally don't know. Um, coming up uh, either late Monday or early Tuesday, D3Football.com, all region teams will be coming out. Um, Keith, I know we're uh, an hour and 20 minutes into this podcast, give or take. Goodness. Um, yeah, well, it's a big week. Um, and it's not just us talking the whole time. Um, but I wanted your thoughts. Uh, do you think we should discuss who should be the coach of the year in each region on this podcast? I mean, next week's podcast though, right? Not, no, I mean, we could go ahead and make the decision right now on the podcast, like we do in the post game, uh, in Salem. Sure. I mean, I've done no research for this. So unless I hope you have like top two names on the list and I just have to pick between two. Uh, otherwise, otherwise I think we should table it. All right. You'll have to come to the website uh, repeatedly on Monday and or Tuesday to find out when we finally have uh, have that out. I will say that. Uh, um, should I? Yeah. OK. All right. Um, uh, Regis Scaife from Thomas Moore is the D3Football.com South Region Coach of the Year. That's the one that's done. Um, and, you know, we have to get out of here. We've been uh, we've been uh, bothering you guys long enough. But we appreciate you uh, tuning in. We'll have lots of coverage of Division Three leading up to the semifinals this week, uh, along with uh, the Gulardi Trophy finalists. That Final Four is expected to be announced on Monday as well. Um, and uh, before we go to the closing credits, uh, Keith has one more thing to throw in. Yeah, I just I just wanted to give a shout out to the, I guess the mutual respect that I saw after a lot of Saturday's quarterfinal games. Uh, Mary Harden Baylor defensive lineman John Isom tweeted at Linfield, kind of uh, you know another great game against you guys. Uh, you know, wish you the best going forward, which is which was pretty classy. Uh, Mike Drass uh, in the in the Mount Union highlight package. You see my at the very end. You see Mike Drass uh, shake hands with Vince Karras. Uh, that's the Wesley coach and the Mountain Union coach. And he says, I hope you guys win it all. Drass said the same thing uh, to the gathered uh, reporters after the game. He said he, he hopes Mountain Union wins it, which for a guy who's lost five times in the playoffs at Mountain Union, you'd think maybe he'd be bitter. They might they might hate each other a little bit. Um, he roots for them to to go on and win it. I guess it makes his program look a little little better. But um, uh, and then you heard you know you heard Fritz in, in his portion of the podcast talk about how much respect Saint Saint Thomas has for Linfield. You know Mountain Union and Whitewater have the mutual respect. Uh, even if you know maybe they praise while gritting their teeth, uh, they, they praise each other. I, I just thought that all stood out, and I wanted to point it out because it's such a fundamental tenet of, of Division Three to, uh, to you know to be sportsmanlike as well as someone who um, you know who goes hard and plays hard and this was around the nation podcast number 145 for the week of december 7th 2015 thanks for listening and stick around for the rest of our coverage throughout the week if you like our podcast please consider rating it in itunes or in your podcast app to help others find it and thanks for following division three football on d3football.com